0: Let me welcome you uh, into the beginning of a teaching series which, the Lord willing, will last the next nine Sunday mornings. Uh, As you know, we've been talking about this over the last few weeks. The video that you just watched uh, sort of depicted that idea that our task together, our joy together over the next nine weeks is to uncover the book of Revelation. Now, I don't mean to say that it's hidden at all, but we want to dig into it and uncover the truths that God has for us here. Now, there's a very specific strategy that we're going to employ in doing this, and we're uh, would even subtitle the series this way, so maybe you'll jot it down somewhere there in your study guide. We're going to do this by understanding the eight key prophetic events in the book of Revelation. We're going to study eight key prophetic events. And what are those eight events? Let me run through them quickly. You'll know uh, over the, uh, the next eight weeks, these are the things that we'll be considering. We'll begin uh, next Sunday. Today, I just want to introduce the book. But next Sunday, we'll begin the understanding these events as we talk about the rapture of the church. The following week, we'll discover what the Bible says about the rise of the beast or the rise of the Antichrist. Week three, we'll talk about the powerful witnesses during the tribulation period, week four, the coming persecution of Israel, week five, the mark of the beast, week six, the battle of Armageddon, week seven, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then week eight, uh, the millennial kingdom and the new creation. And so these are eight key prophetic events that are described in the book of Revelation. But I want you to know at the outset today that these are eight certain facts that are coming upon the world. These are eight future guarantees or certainties that you can know will happen. In fact, when we talk about prophecy... Here's a good definition if you want to write it down. Prophecy is historical fact pre-written by God. So when we talk about Bible prophecy, we're not dealing with predictions. The Bible never predicts anything. God is not a prognosticator, amen? He's not a predictor. God is the sovereign Lord of the earth and of creation and of everything that happens in it. So, God doesn't deal in predictions. God prophesies. He tells us, in fact, uh, exactly what is going to happen. Bible prophecy is historical fact pre written by God. And you should also understand that prophecy is not uh, limited in the scriptural text to the book of Revelation. In fact, the Bible is a book of prophecy throughout. From Genesis to Revelation, there are declarative prophetic statements that you'll find over and over and over again. And oftentimes, you can notice them by the word shall. This shall happen. This will happen. Let me give you a few examples. All the way back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, before you even get out of the Garden of Eden, God uh, uttered a prophetic word. Listen to it. He said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, you and Eve, and between your seed and her seed, he, say this word out loud with me, he shall bruise your head uh, and you shall bruise his heel. In the very third chapter, very first book, in the third chapter of the Bible, you have this prophetic word of a Messiah who will come and who will deliver people from sin and who will crush the head of our enemy. That's all the way back in the Torah, in the law. And then you know that the Old Testament is marked by the writings of the major prophets, guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And certainly you would expect to find prophetic utterances in their writings. Let me give you an example of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 says, And in the days of these kings, say the word with me, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which, say it, shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume All these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And so the book of Daniel, as we would expect, is a book of shalls, what shall come to pass, what shall not happen as well. And then there aren't only major prophets in the Old Testament, but there are minor prophets as well. Now, not minor because they have a less significant Message, but because the, the uh, length of their prophecies or the, the volume of their content is less, and so we call them the minor prophets. Let me give you an example of a prophetic utterance from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Will you do the shalls with me again? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, even from ancient of days. In the Torah, there's prophecy. In the major prophets, you find prophetic utterances. In the minor prophets, you find prophecy as well. What about the New Testament, even the church epistles? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. This verse says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump... For the trumpet, say it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Look at your neighbor. Tell him you're gonna change one day. Tell him you go, and then say, Praise God, praise God, you're gonna change one day. Praise God, He's gonna trans uh, transform us. We shall all be changed. Now, I'm simply making a point, right? That if you if you begin in Genesis if you drop almost anywhere into the biblical text in the Old or the New Testament, and certainly when you come to the book of Revelation, almost anywhere you drop into the biblical text, you're going to find not predictions, but prophecies. In fact, it has been calculated that one, listen to this, out of every four words in the biblical text is a prophetic utterance. One out of every four Words, not verses, words in the Bible is a prophetic utterance. And you have to wonder why. Why would God include so much prophecy, so much information about what's going to come to pass? Why would he include those things in his Bible? And we find the answer, I believe, in, in one prophetic uh, passage that Paul wrote. We'll in fact look at it. It'll be our text next weekend in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord and the rapture of the church. And at the end of that passage, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18, at the end of this description of all of these prophecies and things that will happen, he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The word comfort means to console or to encourage or to take heart. Why would God allow so much of his Bible, so much of the biblical text to be prophetic in nature? Here's why. Because he wants us to find encouragement. He wants us to take heart and to find hope. Herein lies God's motivation, I think, in providing us with so much prophecy. In fact, in your study guide, this is our focus factor for this week. If you want to fill in these blanks, let me just say it to you this way. Because as much as one-fourth of all Scripture, one in, one in four, because as much as one-fourth of all Scripture is prophetic, God clearly intends for his people to take hope in knowing his plans. Because so much of scripture is prophetic in nature. God wants us to know this. If you're listening, shout amen. He wants us to know he has the future securely in his hands. Amen. He knows what he's doing and he's working out his divine plan and he wants us to rest in that knowledge that he's got it all under control. And Man, if he's got it under control for the eons ahead and for the coming uh, times of tribulation and for the return of the Lord, if he's got all of that under control, do you think he's got this Tuesday at 1030 in the morning under control, right? Can I trust him for this Friday and what I'm facing on Thursday if I know that he's got every day of the rest of eternity under his control? God wants us to take hope in knowing his plans so my goal today in Revelation chapter 1 is to simply introduce to you the book of Revelation. I want us to discover the author of the book of Revelation and then to understand its theme and its primary message. Then we'll get into those eight key prophetic events that are coming as we come back together and continue next week. Today we're just going to introduce the ideas uh, from Revelation chapter 1. And then I also want to talk to you today about how to properly uh, interpret, how do we properly interpret the book of Revelation? So let's read the text. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 1. This is, the Bible says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is And his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, and everyone said, "Amen." amen. In red letters, the words of Jesus, I am alpha and omega. The beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience or perseverance of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Send it unto Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, to Thyatira, and to Sardis. Send it to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt around his his shoulders and chest with a golden girdle or golden sash. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like undefined brass. As if they had burned in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are, in fact, those seven churches. Now, if you're a note-taker, I want you to mark in your Bible maybe a little asterisk in the margin next to verse number 11, and then another asterisk in the margin next to verse number 19. The reason I want you to do that is because in these two important verses... Verses 11 and 19, you have an outline of the entire book of Revelation. It's described in in, uh, a succinct fashion in these two verses. Look at verse 11, for example. He says in verse uh, number 11, uh, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Here it is. What you see, write in a book. What you see with your eyes, write in a book. Go to verse number 19, you'll see that command again. The things are, write the things which thou hast seen. So, in the book of Revelation, the first thing that John was to write about was what he was seeing. And what he was seeing was the vision of Jesus, which is recorded in John chapter number one. And he uses a very particular type of writing or literature to express what he's seeing. It's sort of eyewitness accounts. It's a description of what he's in, uh, seeing or what he's experiencing there on the Isle of Patmos. It, he says things like, I heard, I turned, I saw. That's what it looked like. It's descriptive language describing what he has seen. Then verse 19 says, not only are you to write what you see, but listen to verse 19 as he goes on. Write the things which you see and the things which are. So you write what you, the vision you're seeing, but then write the things that are happening right now, the things that are occurring right now. Now, what are those things? Well, those are the things that are being addressed in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. These are the letters to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now I know we didn't read them. Of course we don't have time, but chapters 2 and 3 contain seven letters to the seven churches named in chapter 1 and verse number 11. He is to write the things which are. This is the fact that the church was existing in John's day and it continues to exist today. And those seven churches were actual, literal churches that lived and existed then, and they are representative of the entire church age during the period or the age of the church. These are the things which are. And during chapters, or in these letters, in chapters 2 and 3, John writes using the words of Jesus, which are didactic words, teaching words, words that are evaluating them and then giving them instruction and commands. Write the things that you see, write the things which are. And then the third part of the outline you'll find in verse number 19 is this. Write the things which you've seen, the things which are, verse 19 goes on to say, and the things which shall be hereafter. And so that picks up the text. The things that shall be hereafter picks up in, in chapters 4, 5, really beginning in chapter 6, and then all the way through the end of the book Uh, all the way through chapter number 22. And these are the prophecies of things that will occur in this world one day. And it's in those chapters primarily, though you have some of it in chapter 1 as well, it's primarily in the chapters beginning in chapter 6, the things that shall be, where you begin to encounter very symbolic language, a lot of metaphors, a lot of symbols that are representing various things. John uses symbols, things he understood, to communicate the things which he was seeing, which in so many cases were beyond description. So you can understand the book of Revelation. You can approach it correctly as you understand it contains three types of literature addressing three specific things. What he saw on the island what's happening in the church and then what will happen one day in the future. Descriptive eyewitness testimony, didactic teaching from the Lord and then symbols which tell us about the things which will come to pass. Now another thing that you'll notice about Revelation as we go through it is this, is that Revelation shows you almost like watching a split screen on your television, it shows you what's happening on the earth and in heaven. And you always need to be aware when you're reading in the passage, am I reading something that's happening on the earth or am I reading something that's happening in heaven? Because if you try to interpret something for the earth that's going on in heaven or vice versa, then you're going to mess up in your in your understanding of the book, right? So it's, so the text shows you parallel worlds and And the text then often jumps between the two. You'll be reading something going on here and suddenly in the next chapter you'll be up in heaven. In the following chapter or maybe at some part in that chapter you'll be back down on the earth. We'll bear that in mind as we study through the book. Now that brings us to the question of interpretation. And so I want to begin, just take just a minute... And talk about this by asking you the question or having you think with me about the question what are the rules that guide our interpretation of the book of Revelation? How do we interpret it? And in fact, not just the book of Revelation, but any part of the Bible. What are our rules of interpretation? You have to follow the guidelines, you have to follow the rules or else you're making it up as you go, okay? So I want to give you the three rules of interpretation that are going to guide us, that always guide us, but certainly they're going to guide us as we study through the book of Revelation. Now, everybody look up here. Both campuses look up here for a second. Check back in. Don't check out, okay? Don't glaze over now that I'm talking about rules of interpretation. These are important. We'll give them to you real quick, and then we're going to get into the text, okay? Here's the first one. First rule that always got our Bible study is this. The Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. Always follow this rule. This is the foundational rule of literal, or what we would call biblical literalism, or the foundational rule of how we interpret the Bible literally. And let me just say it, Okay. At Brookstone Church, we are biblical literalists. We believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. All right? Always approach a text saying this to yourself. God says what he means in the Bible, and he means what he says. The second rule, then, that comes out of that is this. It is that we always use what's known as the historical grammatical method of interpretation don't glaze over the historical grammatical method of interpretation here's what that simply means anytime you're reading a biblical text in revelation or any other part of the bible when you read a biblical text you're asking yourself this question what do these words that i'm reading what do they mean that's what you're asking right what is god's word saying What does it mean? And if you want to faithfully interpret it, then you need to ask this question, which is the question of the uh, historical grammatical method. What did the words mean in their original grammar, in their original historical context when the author wrote them? What did they mean then? And I'm going to transfer that meaning into my life or into my context or or into modern day. What did it mean then? Now, I'm going to apply that into my context. Let me give you an example. Genesis 3, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis uh, 12. I'm sorry, Genesis 15. I'll get there in a minute, all right? In Genesis 15, Genesis 12 and 15, okay, you have the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abram, I will give you a land. And he went so far as to describe the land, its boundaries, beginning with the river of Egypt and going all the way to the Mediterranean and encompassing this large swath of land in the Middle East. In Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, I'm giving you that land. Now here's the question what does land mean? If I'm going to interpret that, what's God saying, I, I need to go back and say, well, when God talked to Abram about land and rivers and oceans, what did it mean? If you're ready, say amen. This is deep. It meant land and rivers and oceans, okay? That's what it meant. It didn't mean some heavenly land. It didn't mean in the realm of the spirit I'm going to give you. No, it meant here's the river, here's the ocean. You get the land in between, right? If that's what it meant then, that's what it means now. That's how we approach scripture from a historical and a grammatical uh, method of interpretation. Then we apply those to today. All right, that's the second rule. So number one, the Bible says what it means means what it says. Number two, what the words mean then? Then I'm going to interpret them to mean the same now. And then thirdly, third rule builds on the previous two, is this. If the plain sense, in interpreting scripture, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. If the plain sense makes sense, just stop glazing over, stay with me. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. This has been called the golden rule of literal Bible interpretation. So I read the scriptures, I apply the historical grammatical method, what do those words mean, I bring them into my context, as that makes sense in my my context, I don't need to seek any other sense, it means what it says. Where there is symbolism, I still look for the literal meaning represented by the symbolism, you see. So we're always looking for what does the scripture say, and there's plenty of symbols to be found in the whole bible but certainly in the book of revelation in fact in verse number 1 the very first verse of revelation he says that he sent this message and signified it by his angel unto John the word signified means he sent the message in symbols okay all right so those are our rules those are going to guide our rules of interpretation now, if you boil all that down here's the one thing you can say we're going to interpret the book of revelation literally all right we're going to interpret the book of Re- revelation Literally, because that's how we interpret Scripture. All right, well, let's talk about the text now that we've... If y'all are doing okay, say amen. Amen. All right, wake your neighbor up if they went to sleep during the rules. So let's talk about the text now. So write this down. We're going to begin by seeing the vision. So what you have in chapter number one is the Patmos vision. The Patmos vision. And immediately in the text, you realize who the author is. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 9... All of these identified the Apostle John as the author, the earthly author, of the book of Revelation. And in fact, it's, it's interesting to me in verse number 9 that he says to them as John writes, I, John, who also am your... Listen to, listen to the sense, the spirit of community in verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and your companion in tribulation... And your companion, your brother in the kingdom of God, your companion as we persevere in Jesus Christ, there's a real sense of community here. John doesn't write to them from some elevated position as the apostle John, sort of separate from their experience. He says, I'm suffering with you. I'm a co-journeyman with you. I'm in this, I'm on this path along with you. There's a real beautiful lesson in this for us that all of us, like John, are brothers and sisters and companions in the kingdom of God here on the earth. And maybe we're suffering and struggling along the way. Certainly some of our brothers and sisters around the world are. But as we go through the struggles and journeys in this life, we are persevering how? Together as we continue in the kingdom of Jesus. God doesn't call lone rangers to serve him. So, I love that we've got over 60, I think 66 life groups beginning to gather and study the book of Revelation together this week. And I love that over 100 of you connected last week for the first time to a life group. I hope, I hope all the rest of you will. Why? Because we need to do life together. We need to press through and persevere together. This is what John said, it's what he modeled for us. He goes on in verse number nine to say, I, your brother and companion, was in the isle, verse 9, I was in the isle or on the island that is called Patmos, and I had been exiled or banished there for preaching the word of God and because of the witness or the testimony of Jesus Christ within me. Patmos, an island just off the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea, still called Patmos today. John was there because he had been being a faithful proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had been pastoring the church in Ephesus, the churches that he was writing these letters to. Why did God call John to write the letters? John had been ministering to these churches already. These are churches where he had been serving and pastoring in Ephesus for sure and influencing the others in in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey uh, as well. And so he writes to them saying, I have been exiled, you're not seeing me, I'm not with you because I have been banished. Church history tells us that the Roman emperor Domitian banished John to Patmos. In the same way that you might go to prison at Alcatraz years ago, or in the same way that the British empire years ago used to send their, sorry to any Australians in the room, but used to send their criminals to Australia. It was a place of banishment. Well, this is what Patmos was. There were mines on the island, and John, no doubt, was a slave laborer, a prisoner, a forced laborer in the mines on Patmos. Listen to what he says in verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. If you think that's a good place to be on the Lord's day, shout amen, in the Spirit. But you know, we shouldn't make light of this. I want you to listen very carefully to me. There's something to be learned here in verse number 10 when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Did you come to church today seeking the Spirit of God? Did you come to church today seeking the the Lordship of Christ and wanting to learn from his words and exalt his name? Or, Or did you come out of a force of habit or because somebody really made you come, a husband or a wife made you come, or your parents made you come? Or did you come in seeking the Lord in The Spirit, because when you come that way, you can hear from Him. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and the very next word says, and I heard. Because I was in the Spirit, I heard. So many times people have said to me, I I didn't get anything out of church. I, I go and I sit and I listen and I don't get anything out of it. I, I'm a part of that, those people, but, but I, I gain nothing from them. They never say that about our church. I hear about other churches, all right. But. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But th- but I didn't get anything, can I tell you something? It, it might be that you could go to a church that, where there's no presence of the Lord and you wouldn't get anything. But 99% of the time, if we find ourselves in the Lord today, in the Lord's house, and we get nothing, it's because we are not in the Spirit And we are not tuned in and we are not listening. We have not tuned our hearts to hear from him. John says, I was in the spirit, verse 10, on the Lord's day and I heard, because I was in the spirit, I heard behind me a great voice that sounded like a trumpet. And what he heard and what he saw was this revealing, this revelation of Jesus. But what's interesting is, that what he heard and what he saw in Revelation chapter number one bore little resemblance to the Jesus that he had known for three and a half years. It didn't look or sound much like Jesus at all. In fact, it's very clear in Revelation chapter one, there's no gentle shepherd in Revelation chapter number one. There's no meek and mild, humble and lowly Jesus in Revelation chapter number one. One. There's no man of sorrows here bearing a cross. There's, there's no silent lamb prepared for the slaughter. What John sees in Revelation chapter 1 is the revelation of Jesus. Jesus as he truly exists. Jesus as he truly is. This is what verse number 1 says. This book, this writing, these letters, this vision These 22 chapters are the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apokalupsis. We get our word apocalypse from it, but the word means to unveil or to uncover. That's the name of this series, Revelation Uncovered. It means to pull back the curtain. What Revelation does and what John begins to encounter in chapter number one is this pulling back. Of the curtain on the full glory of Jesus. And what he sees is is incredible. He sees in this passage Jesus as the eternal and sovereign Lord with all of his power and his authority. Look at verse 8. He's turned and hears this voice. Verse 8 I am the Alpha and the Omega. Many of you know these are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet that would be the equivalent of Iris saying, I am the A and the Z. I'm not just the R or the Q. Don't, you won't find me between the M and the O. I, I am all that is contained in the language. Take any letter you want to f- take, form any words you want to f- form, and I am the fullness of all those things. I am the Alpha." And the omega. He says uh, which uh, is and which was and which is to come. Look at verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice that sounded like the voice of a trumpet. I often think of Jesus when he was here in his earthly life speaking meekly and mildly, little children, my brothers, my friends. I'm glad that John, when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, if you're with me, shout amen. When he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos and the glorious, eternal, sovereign Alpha and Omega shows up, he didn't go, John, hey, John, Jesus here. No, he said, I heard a voice and it sounded like a trumpet. It sounded like the voice of roaring, rushing many waters. He says in verse number 11, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end what you see write in a book and send it unto those churches. Look at verse number 15. He said, when I saw him, the description of him was incredible. But he had this voice, verse 15 at the end of the, end of the verse, the voice like the sound of many waters. And then he said, when I saw him, I realized that I knew, I knew that he had risen from the dead. John would have said, I believe that. But then listen to what, how Jesus describes himself in this vision. Verse number 18, Jesus speaking to John says, I am he that liveth. Now, if you believe Jesus is alive, both campuses shout amen. amen. He's alive. But John records that Jesus said, I am alive and I was alive. Dead. Now, I love this. Some people have a theory that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead because he never truly died. It's called the swooning theory. That Jesus just swooned into a state of unconsciousness because of the beating and the crucifixion and the blood loss. He just—they thought he was dead, but he never really died. And he woke back up and came back to consciousness and and walked out of the grave. Jesus said. I am alive, I was, say it, I was dead. And he goes on to say in verse number 18, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He'll never die again. I am alive forevermore. And Jesus amended himself in verse 18. What about that? (laughs) Jesus amen. the fact of the resurrection. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Now here's here's the point. When he sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 on the Isle of Patmos, he sees Jesus as, as not just this Lord who loved us and died and rose, but as a conqueror. As the one who defeated death. And because he defeated death and he has the keys of hell and death, then we need not fear death. Number three, he saw him as the glorious king of the ages. I don't have time to to go through all of it. but Look at the description beginning in verse number 12. I saw these seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks stood the son of man clothed in a robe that went down to his feet. He had a golden sash across his chest. His hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were bright and flaming like the flame of a fire. His feet stood as those that had stood and had been burned in a furnace. They were like brass, had the voice of many waters. Seven stars in his hands hands, sharp sword out of his mouth, this is a description of the glorious king of all the ages. And it matches the description uh, that Revelation chapter 19 gives us of Jesus when he comes as king of kings and lord of lords. And in all of that glory, all of that power and authority, a voice of many waters and a voice of a trumpet and keys of hell and death and and the conqueror of death, and I was dead, now I'm alive and alive forevermore, and golden sash, and speaking with a sharp and truthful word, all-seeing eyes, and, and this golden sash denoting his royalty and his power. In the midst of all of that, John says, he was standing in the center of seven golden candlesticks, and he had seven stars in his hand. And we don't have to wonder what those things mean. This happens frequently in Revelation, and I'm glad that it does. Verse number uh, 20, the last verse of the chapter, tells us exactly what the seven stars are and what the seven candlesticks are. It interprets it for us. Seven candlesticks are the seven churches, and the seven stars are the angels or the, pas- or the pastors of those seven churches. Here's what John sees this glory, if you are listening, say amen. amen. This glorious king of all eternity, the conqueror of hell and of death, is present with his church. He is in the midst of his church. And here's what you need to know. The church of Jesus Christ is not this little organization in the world like the PTA or the Rotary Club. It is the indwelt, blood-bought body of Christ on this world intended to drive back the forces of hell and enlarge the kingdom of God in the power of the risen Lord. He is this Lord that John saw. And verse 17 tells us that when John saw this incredible vision of Jesus, he did the only reasonable thing, the, the, the only thing that someone seeing Jesus in all of his glory could do. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He fell at his feet like a rag doll. A dead man doesn't slowly kneel on one knee. You seen Toy Story? You watched Andy in Toy Story every time the humans come in the room? His knees go weak. I can't believe I'm just talking about the risen Lord with Toy Story. It's a terrible illustration. But the point is, he sees the risen Lord, his knees go weak, he collapses like a doll, Fell at his feet as a dead man. Man, we could learn something about worship from that, couldn't we? We could learn something about the glory. We sang this morning, You are holy, holy, holy. We could learn something about the posture and the attitude of worship, which doesn't stand proudly, but it kneels quickly and humbly before Him. And in fact, this vision that John saw is what the ultimate revelation of this book is all about. Write it down, it's our prophetic point. In that first chapter, that introduction chapter of your study guide, it is that one day, one day God will unveil the blinding glory of Jesus Christ to the entire world. One day what John saw is what all of us will see. Not only all of us, but one day what John saw is what everyone on the earth will see. And this is in fact the next thing that John teaches us. It is the promise of Christ's return I want you to look with me at verse number 7 I'm hurrying verse 7 here's the promise this is an affirmation this is a prophetic utterance this is a prophetic guarantee this is a future fact on planet earth Revelation 1 verse 7 behold he Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him amen he's coming He's coming, and in the coming weeks, we'll talk about what that return will look like. We'll we'll see the descriptions of the return of Jesus and how it will unfold. But just know this, it is an oft-repeated promise in the Bible, and it's often repeated in Revelation. For the sake of time, we won't turn now, but you can make some notes and go read them later. Chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 16, verse 15. Chapter 22, verse 12. Let me just take you to the very last chapter of Revelation, go to Revelation chapter 22, the next to the last verse in the Revelation. In fact, the next to the last verse in the Bible, the closing promise of the Word of God. Are you listening? It is the final declarative word in the Scriptures. It is the last thing that Jesus reveals to us and to this world. Verse 20 Jesus says, surely I am coming quickly. Jesus is coming again. Now, if if Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says that he's coming and every eye shall see him, and if, if it's repeated throughout the book of Revelation, and the final promise in the entire Bible, let alone in the book of Revelation, is this promise that he's coming back to the earth then that fact ought to compel us in the few minutes that we have remaining to consider his first advent. If he's coming back, why did he come the first time? What's he coming back for? If he came and did what he came to do, why does he need to return again? Well, John tells us about his first appearance. Uh, Chapter 1 and verse number 5 And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. Now a a, a, a doxology begins in verse number five in the middle part, unto him that loved us. Everybody look up here and listen to me. Why did Jesus come the first time? He came because he loved us. Amen. He came because he loved me. He loved you. This is what he said in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The, the Bible says in the book of Romans that God demonstrated his love for us and that Christ came. It was love that compelled him to come the first time. And and here's the fact. He didn't come to a world 2,000 years ago that was ready to receive him or a world that was expecting him or a world that was loving him. He came to a world full of rebellion, of rebels, of runners, of rejectors. And he came anyway. He loved us. He says in verse number 5, "...unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood." Why did he come the first time? Because he loved us and because he, he had a mission to wash us from our sins. And there was only one way that our sins could be washed. Baptism could never do it and being better could never whitewash our past and turning over a new leaf could never deny the fact of the other side of the leaf. Being better tomorrow than I was yesterday is good but it doesn't undo a single thing from 24 hours ago. If my sins were to be cleansed they must be washed away. And all the soap of morality in the world wouldn't wash my sins away. And all of the, of the detergent of good deeds couldn't do it. It required a sacrifice and Jesus loved me and shed his blood to to wash away all my sins. That's why he came. He came, verse 5 says, because he loved us and because by his blood shed at the cross, he would wash our sins away. Verse number 6 tells us that he wasn't through with us by cleansing us, but he, he came the first time so that he could make us kings and priests unto our God. We'll talk about that in future weeks. What does that mean? I'm not just a forgiven sinner. I have been made... with a a purpose and a role in the kingdom of God. The fact is, verse number seven says he's coming again, but the Bible tells us he came the first time because he loved us and he wanted to cleanse us. He wanted to make us kings and priests. And then lastly, finally, this verse, this chapter promises us a blessing. It is the blessing of knowing that you're ready. The blessing of knowing that you're ready. Can I ask you a question? Honest, honest question? It's just me and you now, right? It's not church, not sermon. It's like we're having coffee, okay? And here's the question. When, when I read verses in that Bible, whether you're sure that it's true or not, if you're, if you're questioning even the validity of Scripture, I'm just asking you, what's your, what's your response? When you hear that Bible say, Jesus, this glorious King who died and rose is coming again. What, what What's going on in you? Are you terrified? Or are you encouraged? Are you anticipating that day when he will come? Do you feel blessed? Or do you feel afraid? When you think of his return, do you feel excitement? At the end of Chapter 22, behold, I come quickly. And John says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. There's an excitement. Do you feel that excitement or do you feel dread? Look at Revelation chapter one and verse three. It says you can have the blessing of being ready. Verse three, blessed, happy, at peace is he that reads and hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written therein for the time is near. hand. In other words, the, the coming of the Lord is imminent. It could happen at any time. And if you will understand why he came the first time, understand that he's coming again and do what he says, then you will be blessed and you will find joy and anticipation and excitement at the prospect that today could be the day that the Lord will come again. There's a lot of things for us to learn in the book of Revelation, but the first thing we all need to know is that he loves you even in your sin and in my sin, he loved us and he gave his blood for us at the cross that we could be saved. In your study guide, there is a next step and I hope all of you will take it. That is that because the book of Revelation is a promised source of blessing, therefore I will read and keep its commandments. Because I know that he has promised that if I will understand what's coming and if I will do what's commanded, I will be blessed. Then, then I want to take that step. And I really believe that for some in this room today and some of you at Merriman, that the first step is the step of faith in Jesus Christ. It is to acknowledge that you need a Savior, that you're a sinner. Just like I am. Just like everybody around you is. To be honest about the fact that you cannot save yourself. doesn't matter how good you are become, how hard you try. I mean, times you're baptized, none of those things will matter. You cannot save yourself to admit that and to believe that Jesus died and rose for you. That his blood was so that your sins could be forgiven. He was paying the price for your sins, satisfying the wrath of God in your place and that he has risen and that he is coming and that you want to be ready by being his follower, by choosing him. And I want to give you that opportunity to do that today. But just before I pray, and I, I hope you'll pray this prayer with me. But just before I do, let me, let me say this to you. That some of you are sitting here on both campuses today with friends who invited you. And they invited you because they love you. And they, they want you to know Jesus. And they want to spend eternity with you. And they're, they're grateful for your friendship or grateful that you share the same family. And they want to share that fellowship with you forever. And they are praying for you, that you'll trust in Christ. But I also want to tell you that, that they would love to hear what you are thinking after today. Not, did you like our church? Did you have a good visit? Was the music good? Did you think the sermon was okay? Were people kind? Not that. But what are you, what are you doing with what you heard? What is the word of God? What kind of impact is it making in your life? Do you believe what you're hearing? They're ready to have that conversation with you. And whether you pray with me to receive Christ right now or not, and I hope you will, but whether you do that or not, your friend is ready to have that conversation with you after church today. And I hope you'll have it.